Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What is up, Mets Up listeners? Welcome back to episode number 87 of the Mets Up podcast. I'm not doing the intro. We're hopping right into this because the boys, we're hot. We're steaming. Me and James just got finished watching game three of the Mets Cardinal series. And as you know, there was a fucking fight. There was a fight. The Mets and the Cardinals brawled. Granted, no punches were thrown, but it is hot. It is heated. And we're ready to talk about it. James, I know we were talking about it right before we started firing it up here, but woo. The blood is, I'm, I'm shaking, I'm buzzing right now. This was as much of a baseball fight as any baseball fight I can remember in recent memory, truthfully. Like there was, there wasn't exactly a necessary punch being thrown, but there was a, a throwing, there was a flipping, there was lots of shoving. One of the Cardinals relievers didn't even wait to get out the door in the bottleneck from the bullpen. He jumped over the fence. He jumped over like a 10-foot outfield fence to get to the field as quickly as possible. Let's set the scene here because the Mets have been getting hit all year long. They lead the majors and hit by pitches, and they got hit a couple times again today. And it ended with J.D. Davis in the what top of the eighth inning, right, getting hit by an, in the ankle by Genesis Cabrera. Yes. I don't remember what pitch it was. Hit him right in the ankle. Limps around. Limped around, out of the game. We don't know what's going on. That that could bother J.D. Like, that might be a something we have to keep an eye out for here. But, as we know, Mets have been getting hit all series long. We see Pete Alonso get hit in the head. Starling Marte get hit. All the guys have been getting drilled all year long. And it's it's not intentional. I don't think any of these getting hit by pitches are necessarily intentional. But at some point, if you're the Mets, when you're leading the league and getting hit by pitch, you have to put your foot down. You have to say, enough is enough. And you have to make... You have to you have to make a, a stance. You have to say something. You have to do something. And that's what they did. But even then, the Cardinals are such, such hardos. Babies. The biggest hardo babies ever because this 95-mile-an-hour fastball that was up in the zone to Nolan Arenado that started all this wasn't even really close to hitting him at all. It was an inside corner high fastball out of the zone. He was never in danger of getting hit. That pitch wasn't that close. No, for sure, but there was intent behind that pitch. I for almost sure. think that Yoan Lopez, the pitcher on the Mets, who seems to now be indoctrinated into the club, Max Scherzer was basically just like had his arm around him in the next inning. Yeah, this guy's the, the high fives in the uh, dugout right after he came in. Everyone was pumped. They're like, you did your fucking job. You're one of us now. I hope he's good because he's going to be on this team the rest of the year, but... That pitch definitely came with intent. I almost think a part of me that he he didn't even execute. Like that pitch was supposed to be behind Dolan Arenado. That pitch was supposed to be right in the middle of his spine, and he just kind of missed his spot as as a quadruple A reliever would, and and that ignited the whole thing. And then stupid Arenado, the guy, he's screaming, "Come on, do it again, do it again!" Freaking asshole. I had an argument with one of my friends yesterday about 
how Arenado's like a secret hard though, and I don't think he's that likable, but everyone sucks him off, especially like the Mets announcers this entire series. And he takes Tomas Nilo, who's trying to quell the situation and calm him down, grabs him by his chest protector, and throws him to the ground. That fucking cheap shot coward. And that's kind of actually what started this whole thing. Like, yeah, yes, Juan sure. Lopez came up and in, but if Nolan Arenado didn't just toss Tomas Nito like a rag doll, there is no brawl. It's just a loud talking. Probably gets thrown out again, honestly. Let's be honest. He probably yeah, next gets it gets brushed back again or, you know, hitting the butt or whatever it is. But if he didn't throw Tomas Nito, this situation is kind of kind of still simmering right now. Maybe a rolling boil. But he threw him to the side and everything just exploded. I mean, like you said, Nolan Arenado is definitely a hardo. And uh, he made a, a pretty big play for us that we'll talk about later in the series. So the Mets end up winning this one. But it was just... I, it, it's so funny to me because the, the discourse on social media on Twitter, because of course I have to stir the pot as I do a social media person here, talking about how the Mets have been getting hit all year long, getting hit in the head in this series, and the Cardinals took exception to not even getting hit, just almost getting hit. And like the Cardinals fans are like, well, if you're going to hit him, hit him, hit him low and hit him in the butt. You're right. They didn't hit him though. He wasn't touched. The ball didn't even graze a, a hair coming off of his chin. Nothing was done to Nolan Arenado besides a little chin music. And he freaked out like the hardo he is. Baby. Great baseball player, but Fantastic. he acted like a big baby here. And I want to say this. That reaction tells me one thing and one thing and only. The Mets are in their fucking heads. That is an I'm in your head move right there that you didn't even get touched. And you're like, I, I'm pissed. I'm angry. Well, it's not that the Mets are in their head. It's that they just had to sit down and watch a series where they got kind of thoroughly beat by the Mets. Today's game being excluded yesterday when you guys are listening to this. And this is a team that we saw last year. The Cardinals made mince me in the Mets, a very veteran team who has handled the Mets, at least in our heads historically in the past. Last year, they were able to to crush them twice, two separate series on both on bookending the Mets' entire season, basically, of of disaster, whereas the Cardinals sweep, I believe, unless they won one game in that May series, but that's unimportant. And now the Cardinals had to go through a series where they blew a game in a horrific fashion on Monday night. They just got absolutely diced up by one of the best pitchers, like you say, in baseball history on Tuesday, Max Scherzer. And they're going through a game today where they finally have a lead. They actually have a comfortable victory, and they have to just muck it up because they're not really comfortable being being the losers very often as the as the esteemed franchise I'd like to pretend to be. No, it was it's great that we got the series win off of them, especially because, like, I, I don't understand this whole conversation, too, like a lot of Cardinals fans and stuff, because, again, I began so much shit on social media from the Cardinals fans for my comments, but they're like, oh, well, you shouldn't have won game one. In game two, you guys got lucky. It's like, well, what happened today in game three? Because you guys really didn't particularly hit the ball that well. There was a lot of soft contact that ended up dropping. Like, if we're going to start nitpicking every single play, we're going to nitpick every single play. And it all led to this. It all led to the fight. That's why everybody's hot. That's why everybody's ready to fight. I'm ready to fight. And I got to say, Buck Walter, fucking edge, man. The 65-year-old man gives this team so much edge. We saw Scherzer screaming at the dugout. Like, I just... This is what I've been waiting for for a Mets team for a few years. We know we've been pretty good, and we've had some disappointment, but there wasn't this like confidence. There wasn't, like I don't want to say arrogance, but a cockiness, a confidence, an edge that this team lacked, and it feels like they might have it, and I hope, I hope this is kind of what has somehow like woke it up in the Mets being like, we're, we're big dick swinging guys over here now. Something I talked about after that national series early in the season that I thought that Davey Martinez was hard to wing the Mets like on purpose. I thought he was doing his whole situation, throwing at the Mets every single game, multiple times a game, as a bit to rile up an inferior team. And I think that kind of showed us early in the season that 
this new Mets team just had a collection of guys who maybe aren't exactly unlikable individually, but it seems like they might be unlikable as a whole. And I think that is kind of bound together by Buck Walter's attitude and relative aggression. And just even to build on that national situation, did you see what Davey Martinez did? I believe it was on Monday night or Tuesday night against the Giants. Oh, with uh, the bunt when they were up a bunch of runs and he was freaking out about that? Yeah, the Giants like scratched across a run in the eighth inning when they were already up six to make it a seven-run game. And David Martinez went ballistic, saying they were trying to run up the score. This again, this this, this is just what managers of bad teams will do. Like Davey Martinez, who is an old school guy, a hard though, and a manager of a bad team. Just goes to show that this Mets team, now especially after this actual fight, their second bench clearing incident in less than one month, are a team that's going to have their tar- a target on their backs the entire season. You know why? It's because they're really good. They're really fucking good. Outside of game three, the Mets played really really good baseball this series and as much as we'd love to talk about the fight for 25 minutes here and we probably could there's a lot of different things like stubby clap taking stubby down clap. pete alonzo what's actually let's talk about that that was a that was an impressive move pete's a big guy but what the hell is that it's stubby clap sounds like a 1920s baseball name <laughs> it's a fake name that's not a real person stubby clap i'm gonna get probably a little vulgar for a second so if you guys are listening with your kids maybe 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 earmuffs but stubby clap is a direct translation for a, a chode with chlamydia <laughs> <laughs> how is his name real how can you go around being called stubby clap like that's ridiculous and that wasn't very impressive that was like an old school wrestling move like he grabbed pete and kind of like gator rolled him to the ground <laughs> yeah he did he treated him like a gator and ronnie had a really good quote about being in baseball fights he was like when you get into these fights a few times which we all know ron darling was a bit of a hothead he had been in these fights a few times he's like you're able to identify the four or five players who are going to be a problem which is a really <laughs> funny way to talk about like a large-scale brawl and Stubby Clap basically beelined it for Pete Alonso coming in from first base on the first base dugout immediately to de-escalate that fight. Pete was Pete was going for Nolan. Oh, Pete Pete was ready. Pete was like locked in. He had a a, a straight line. He was making a beeline right to Nolan Arenado. Dude, Lindor was in the middle of it too. Taiwan Walker and his big body was in the middle of it. Max Scherzer was definitely the first guy over the rail. He was like, Nito. "Oh, let's go!" Yeah, Nito, well, Nito, as soon as soon as he got thrown to the ground, he got right back up and was he was he was seeing red. It took Yadier Molina, his like country's hero, <laughs> to actually calm him down. Probably literally, Tomas Nito's actual idol. Probably yeah. the person he idolized while growing up playing baseball in Puerto Rico was Yadier Molina, and he was like basically wearing a T-shirt telling him to calm down, please. Yadier's like. If you're going to fight him, you have to fight me. Remember, you have to hit me. Like, <laughs> it's like, don't make me. Yes, you have to. No. <laughs> but, oh, it gave me, that gave me some life. Because the, the game, like you said, like, it just, it wasn't very good on our side. We no. did score five runs, but Carrasco wasn't sharp. We lost that one. And this is the story of game three, though, the fight. Thank God. And also, just shout out to Steven Matz for not pitching a good game and also not being able to stay in this game long enough to actually get the victory against the Mets. I've never been more grateful for the rule. You have to pitch five innings to get a win. Yeah, oh God, he really didn't pitch well. That's the frustrating part. The Mets actually hit him pretty well. Truthfully, and also just now to get back into this game, there were so many chances in the first three innings where he was just throwing balls down the middle with the men on base and the Mets just couldn't really get that big hit to make it like 6-1 early rather than 4-1. And the Cardinals hung around. They're a good team. Every team in baseball is hard to sweep. The Mets have taught us that this year, just being allergic to sweeps by winning every single series but not sweeping a single one and eventually just like the balls are going to fall in play like Carlos Carrasco he didn't really pitch well certainly his worst start of the year but he gave up seven earned runs on just three hard hit balls like that's almost hard to do and Arenado himself actually had a very nice little two out blooper something that I talk about batting average runs in scoring position being basically a fake stat that's just driven by luck but Arenado's been like 340 330 his entire career so I'm gonna give him the credit over the 10-year sample but Nito also, there was a sequence where before, when the Cardinals think only had four runs and they were rallying in the fourth yeah. when Ar- Carrasco eventually got knocked out. He let the ball go right through the wickets to score what was a go-ahead run then. Carrasco seemed to totally lose concentration after that, which 
you can't blame him for that, but also a veteran pitcher. Maybe you got to try and pitch through that. Whatever. This this wasn't the story of the game. story of the game was the fight. story of the game was the fight, and it happened. I, I, I was happy. We knew it was coming. I was talking to my friends. You like, called on it. Dis- yep, I called it. I was talking to my friends on Discord, and I was saying that uh, after J.D. Davis got hit, I was like, guys, turn on the Mets-Cardinals game. I'm telling you right now, the next half inning, there is going to be a brawl. I, I promise you. It's going to happen. Buck Showalter plus everything that's been going on. It was a perfect storm for exactly what happened. I will say this. Thank goodness no one got hurt Mm because that would be like the worst thing that could happen in this brawl. Actually, we're not sure about that because Dylan Carlson appeared to not really be very involved in the brawl, but he also was pinched for the next inning. So the guys in the booth, Gary and Ron, were hypothesizing the fact that maybe he did get injured in the brawl because usually they get a press uh, release of the ejections. That didn't come because it was so late in the game, but it was like very obvious that Stubby Clapp and Nolan Arenado were thrown out, but I didn't. On the replays, I didn't see Dylan Carlson involved in this at all. Also, should shout out Dylan Carlson because he made one of the best throws I've ever seen in my entire life. Disgusting when he when he threw the ball in the air when Guillaume got hosed at third. I was like, oh, that's a pretty good cutoff. Like that was that was pretty clean. And they're like, that was from Carlson. I was like, that's from the wall in center field on a fly right to the chest. It was a sick throw. Stackhouse said it came in at ninety seven miles an hour. Whew. I'm like over 250 feet away. That's a sick throw. He's such a he's a fun player. He just kind of been struggling a bit, but he's like got such good tools. Two ribby triple in this game and that insane throw. Like, doesn't might get him off the Schneid. I have I have Carlson on a lot of fancy teams, so I kind of hope it does. Yeah, but like we said, story of this game three was the fight. Mets lose. Yeah, but let's talk about all the great that happened in this series because the Tons Mets win the series against the Cardinals. Who again we talked about this as another test. We said the Giants were a test. The Cardinals on the road are a test for sure, even though we've had more success than we thought. And we came in, and while Game 1 was like kind of a lucky win, I actually don't think the Mets really played that bad. And In fact, it could have you could have made an argument they deserved to win that game the way they played. Of course they didn't play bad. There's no way the Mets played bad in Game 1. It was just kind of one of those boring, lulling baseball games that happens in stadiums like St. Louis and New York, where teams have good pitching and good defense, where it's just really hard to scratch anything across. Like I, truthfully myself, was falling asleep during this game. Like it's a seven day inning, I was like watching on my bed, and I was like, "Oh, I'm I'm I'm, lo- I'm losing it." Well, you watch Miles Michaelis pitch; he doesn't have the most uh, exciting stuff by any means. The Lizard King himself, he'll put you to sleep anytime. <laughs> Before we talk about Michaelis, I want to do a little bit about him. We got to talk. Just this was Max Scherzer. This is, Max Scherzer is from St. Louis. This is a great homecoming for him. Not the fact that he's never done that before, but you know, new uniform, new homecoming, new emotions, and this guy's so goddamn good. He somehow was even better than he was last week against the Giants in St. Louis on Monday night. Yeah, I don't know how he does it. What would he go? Seven innings, like 10 Ks and a couple hits. Like they were showing basically his last two starts and he struck out like 29 batters in his last two starts, 19 batters in his last two starts. I think I think it was 20 on the dot in two yeah, starts. Yeah, 20. I, got, I, conv- I plugged the two numbers together. But yeah, mm-hmm. like 20 in the last two starts over like 14 innings with like three hits. Like that's... That's disgusting. In this start, it was the seven innings, ten strikeouts, like you said, two hits allowed, one walk, no runs, of course, because Max Scherzer is not going to be giving up runs anytime soon, it seems like, and literally one hard hit ball, just one, by Goldschmidt, barely snuck over 100 miles an hour off the bat. Like, ridiculous. His patented slider that we've told Mets fans everywhere that this is the pitch you're going to fall in love with, literally one of the best pitches in baseball. Six whiffs on 15 swings, which is basically just average for Max Scherzer, but just to see it came in and game out, you're like, that's average? What the hell? It's pretty good average. Great average. 38% whiffs overall, 35% called and swing strikes. He's just simply and utterly and completely dominant. And the only shame in this was that he had to leave the game with the Mets still having no runs because, like you said, the Lizard King, Miles Michaelis, was just throwing junk at us. Yeah, tell us about the Lizard King because I did not know about this until I saw your tweet and heard on the broadcast about Miles Michaelis eating a live lizard. Dude, I was so shocked by this story. Whenever I think of the Lizard King, I think of... 
uh, either Robert California yep, or Jim from the or, office. Yeah, or Jim Morrison from the Doors. But apparently, Miles Michaelis, while he was playing in the Arizona Fall League as a prospect in the Padres organization at the time, so this was a very long time ago. This was this was an Asian stint ago for Miles Michaelis. This is how long ago this happened. He was just hanging out in the bullpen. It seemed like during a game with the guys. And we, we went to the Fall League this year, and you see the big thing you notice there is that there's, these teams are collections of different players. So you're hanging out with some Padres, some Rangers, some Giants. It's a hodgepodge. Probably a great, some great, great bro time back there. And apparently someone allegedly dared Michaelis to eat a lizard live. And I'm sure just based on the fact these guys are minor leaguers, there was some kind of monetary incentive to this. Maybe $500, maybe a grand. I don't know. But there's a one-minute YouTube video you guys should go out and check out if you have well, the stomach for it. Or maybe you should I, not. I was about to say, I've seen it. It's pretty it's raw it's pretty disturbing honestly. it's very like, disturbing that, that's like some psychopath shit right there to it do. is some psychopath shit miles michaelis was like holding this lizard getting himself jacked up for basically a full minute pouring like little bits of ginger ale on it for taste and then he just fucking chomped the thing in, live like, lizard live lizard in a second and a half he chewed it it was horrific to look at oh, horrific to see crawl. yeah it makes me kind of look at miles michaelis like very much differently after knowing that and yeah, I tweeted it out because I'd never heard that before. Apparently, it's something that's regular. A couple people like made fun of me for not knowing the story. Thought I was like phony as a baseball fan. I was like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about at all. But freaking bizarre, dude. There should be almost no information on Miles Michaelis. He should be irrelevant and boring, just like he is on the mound. But <laughs> he's eating a live lizard, and there's a video. Again, if you can stomach it, go ahead and take a look. But oh, my sickos out there. Like I thinking about it right now. If you guys are watching the YouTube video, I'm it's I'm uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable thinking about it. Oh yeah, it's. I wish I had not watched it. I wish I never knew. Yeah, same. Me too. The freaking lizard king, Gary Cohen, best one of the best play by play guys in sports, pulling out of his ass like the fourth <laughs> inning of a zero zero ball game. That's why he's the best. And the like best. we said, zero zero ball game. So went deep, went deep into a zero zero ball game. It came down to the bullpens in this one, and unfortunately for us, Trevor May continued to struggle. Yeah, Trevor May, and this is something he actually talked about after the game and even after the Tuesday night game. He just doesn't really have the feel for his pitches right now, and you kind of saw that in this one. He had a lot of trouble putting the Cardinals' hitters away. Yadi led off the inning with a seven-pitch at-bat, fouled off a couple tough ones, spit on a couple sliders, and then hit a 3-2 fastball. Just got like a little bit too much plate, straight back up the box, center field. Harrison Bader followed up with a single in the same spot, but this was a slider, but just trying to throw a pitch low and outside to a righty both times, slider and fastball. Trevor just got too much plate. He had two men on, nobody out. And then there was some good old-fashioned baseball going on because Tommy Edmond came to the plate, who's a very good bunter, as everyone will have you know. And the Mets, being the new old-school Buck baseball team, were running the wheel. You never see the wheel anymore. The wheel is such a crazy psycho play where your third baseman and first baseman charge very hard at the bunt, and your shortstop runs simultaneously, basically with the pitch, depending on the rest of your alignment, to third base to try and get the force out. I think the Giants got us with a wheel play Yeah, last week, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of this going on. The cat and mouse game. He bunted, bit missed, and then he pulled the bunk, bump back, slashed, and eventually he just hit like a, a dribbler that went over Trevor May's glove. Became a de facto bunt. Jeff McNeil made a really nice play on it too after the tip. He made a great play from second base coming across the field, throwing across his body. Having, and just showing even more how valuable Jeff McNeil is to this team. Plays great second and left field. Incredible road trip for Jeff McNeil. He completely got himself like back up to level after like a year and a half of being in the mud. In basically a week and a half. <laughs> He's just so back. It's not even funny. Yeah, and then, so now there's second and third for the Cardinals. And this, of course, Harrison Bader and Yadier Molina, the bottom of the order, are the ones who started this rally. So now we have Goldschmidt up with a man on second and third and nobody out. And much to the surprise of a lot of people on Twitter, Buck decided not to walk Goldschmidt, which I personally agreed with just the fact that I trusted my pitcher on the mound, Trevor May, to execute the successful pitch around. And he did get Goldschmidt to swing at a couple swing at a couple bad ones. He had him to 3-2 count. 
he just couldn't throw that last slider to make him chase or dot that fastball to get the soft contact or get a looking strike. So Goldschmidt winds up drawing the walk, and Tyler O'Neill promptly hit a two-run single right after to give the Cardinals a 2 nothing lead. Yeah, I think it's hard to say let's intentionally walk Paul Goldschmidt to face Tyler O'Neill, who's like almost impossible to double up as well, even if you're trying yeah. for that. Like He's just... He's a really, really good athlete, probably one of the best athletes in Major League Baseball right now. I don't disagree with the move that he he had to go after Goldschmidt. Like, he didn't really have the stuff. He kind of had to find it, and as weird as it sounds, like he had to use Goldschmidt as a way to hopefully try and find it, because if you intentionally walk the bases loaded, Tyler O'Neill's up, and if you don't have it, you could be in really big trouble. And after O'Neill is Nolan Arenado, as we've seen as a prolific, uh, he's just been an RBI machine his entire career. Like, there's no real way to get out of the middle of the Cardinals or you kind of just have to attack. So I supported that move, and then May did nut up and get the strikeout of Arenado for the second out to then then he got whoever I don't remember who it's fifth in this lineup but Dickerson Carlson <laughs> Dickerson, that game maybe Carlson one of those know, two somebody. whatever it's he a big drop up, off yeah May dug deep and he kept the damage to two and it is again very clear that he didn't have command of either his fastball or his slider like you mentioned after the game because you 32 percent change ups in this outing which is far and away the most I can ever remember Trevor May using an outing with the Mets and it's just that's just not how he rolls so I trust Trevor to get through. He's a professional, but tough that he couldn't get through this inning. Yeah, anytime you see Trevor go into the changeup as much as he did, we talked about it last year at times when he had some like rough outings. We're like, man, throwing that changeup a lot. It seems like for a pitch that's not his best, it's almost his safety blanket of when things aren't working, at least I will have this. He didn't have it, but then we moved to the ninth inning. Mm-hmm. And this is where we start to have some fun because I, I don't know how it happened. I don't know what exactly went on, but all you needed was a little bit of luck. And it started with a little Eduardo Escobar one-out single. Cano came to the plate, which infuriated me. (laughs) We don't need to talk about that because it ended up working out. Of course, he had a weak fly ball. So two outs, one guy on, and Marky Cheerios, Mark Canna comes to the plate and does what Mark Canna does. Mark Canna, staring, talented closer, not top-tier closer, but very good closer. Giovanni Gallegos in the face. Worked just one of the most masterful at-bats we've seen from a Met this year. Got down 0-2 quickly on two sliders, one that fell in for a strike and one that he whiffed at. And then from 0-2, he got five more sliders successively from Giovanni Gallegos. He fought off a tough one. He barely missed a hanger. He spit on a low one. One was bounced. And then he had what seemed like, I wouldn't say a routine ground ball of Nolan Arenado, but a routine play for Nolan Arenado. He was going towards the line. Like he he like he like charges in coming towards the line, kind of had to make a run on the throw. But these are this is something you've seen him make a hundred out of a hundred times because he's one of the best fielding third basemen in the league. Nine straight gold gloves. Yeah, but he had a hard time getting the ball out of the glove. He took like eight steps trying to do that. It seemed like it threw off his rhythm, sailed it completely over Paul Goldschmidt's mm-hmm. head. Mark Hanna is safe. The game continues on. And, uh, I mean, I know you want to talk about it somehow got ruled as a single, which good for Mark Canna. Give him a single all day. But that's an error. That was an yeah, error. That's completely error. And it screwed me uh, for any fancy baseball players out there for Giovanni Gallegos because since this play was ruled a single for Mark Canna with Eduardo Escobar coming home on the uh, on the throwing error, all of the runs that the Mets would score later were now charged to Giovanni Gallegos, even though the game, the inning, should have been over right there on the spot, which was kind of ridiculous. But, again, glad for Mark Canna. He got, he got his single, get the batting average up, I guess. But that was ridiculous. And then, of course, Jeff McNeil, who's just so friggin' back with the Jeff McNeil double like we see. Absolutely fantastic. Huge, huge part of the inning here was that double. And then we got Dom coming to the play. He was pinch hitting for Nito or McC- McCann? Nito? I think it was Nito. I, one, one of the catchers. I think it was Nito. And I actually was complaining earlier that he wasn't used as a pinch hitter earlier in the game for yeah, Nito in a similar inning. spot. And I was like, no, we're, we have to save this because we're yes. only going to get one shot at this because we're only two catchers. 
So Buck was right. Buck made the right move. Dom comes up, smokes a ball down the first baseline. But because, of course, the Cardinals have great defense, they have Gold Glover, Paul Goldschmidt playing first base, who's playing back, fields it off the base, which is such a hard thing to do as well Mm -hmm. as to get it off the base. Makes an incredible play, but Giovanni Gallegos is sleeping, doesn't get over quick enough. Dom dives in the first. Like, it was was chaos. It was was chaos for sure. Safe. Two-run score. Jeff McNeil scores from second on the ground ball from first. And all of a sudden, this game is looking a whole lot different. Dude, people have not talked about Jeff McNeil's hustle scoring on that ground ball from second base enough. This man started the play on second base, and the ball never got more than eight feet behind the first base bag, and he scored. Diving in head first, screaming, pumping his fist after the play. God, when this guy's playing baseball, like the way he can play baseball, he's such a joy to have on your team. He's so valuable to this team when he's playing like this. My goodness. And I know he's been hitting eighth, which I absolutely hate. Uh-huh. But boy, oh boy, has he been so good. Get this man some more at-bats, please. Whatever. I, I want to see Jeff McNeil hitting more. He's on-base machine right now. And then we got a break because TJ McFarlane comes into the game. And SNY and MLB TV, whatever you're watching on, if you're watching the Mets broadcast, cuts back late, and we just see a ball in the air <laughs> down the right field line. I'm sitting next to my dad because I was home in New Jersey this weekend, and my dad's like, he like smacked me. He gave you like the smack of like, oh, like, oh my goodness, it's happening. What just happened? Like, we I thought it was a replay. Smack. Yeah, we thought it was a replay. And Gary finally comes back as he sees the feed or whatever he's watching, or he finally gets to be heard. And he's like, it's out of here to Brandon Nimmo with a whole two-run home run. And the Mets take a lead. Like, oh, dude, I love that Nimmo. I don't know if you picked this up before he came into the game when they were making the switch. He was talking to some coach on the bench who whipped out an iPad, and they were intently talking about what was going on. And I have to think, that whatever he told him was why he was jumping on that first pitch from TJ McFarlane. Because lefty-lefty, reliever, that seems yeah. like a take for Nimmo every time, and he was ready. I think it was a hanging slider that he was trying to like kind of kind of drop on the inside corner that just caught a little too much play. And we talked briefly last year when Nimmo came back and was swinging more aggressively at first pitches than he ever had in his career. It's just, Brandon Nimmo is really blossoming as a baseball player in front of our eyes, and it's an absolute joy to watch. Yeah, writing a contract here just so we can write a big, well, not we, Steve Cohen can write a big fat check yeah, for him, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> That's a strong day. <laughs> yeah, strong day. But oh, what a what a ninth inning. And then Edwin comes in. I don't care that there was a little bit of drama. Shut the door. Edwin. The drama, was, the drama was Tuesday. There was no drama in this one. There was no drama in this one? I think there was a good one-out walk, but that's not okay, drama. Yeah, that's always scary. But I don't care because the Mets won. Mets win. Great game. Great win. The Mets hit the ball hard. Kind of. Kind of-ish. Like, it was decent. But you know what? These are games that the Mets lose. These are games that these Mets don't win. The way the Cardinals lost is how the Mets lose to the Cardinals in years past, 100%. Their third baseman makes an error with one out <laughs> up against Marcano, who's not the fastest guy on the base paths. Like, Nolan Arenado made a fielding-throwing error on a fairly routine play, and then Paul Goldschmidt makes a sick play, and the pitcher forgets to cover. The fundamentals, they were not there for the Cardinals in the first game. No, they were not. But also, let's give credit to the Mets. The Cardinals as a team only had three hard-hit balls the entire game. Like, they... Besides that tiny little mini rally off of Trevor May, they didn't even get close to scoring a run the rest of this game. And the Mets, they didn't again. They you, they didn't really hit the crap out of the ball. No player had more than one hard hit ball. He only had seven as a team. But this is a game that you could kind of be the team when you just make less mistakes than them. This is something we've been trying to beat home over and over again. As this Mets season is moving on. This Mets team is making significantly less mistakes than teams from the past. Definitely. And everyone was riding high. Everyone was feeling good. And then we got the the weirdest Degrom injury news ever it was Bizarro. like news that wasn't news they're like hey he's he's good he's not gonna throw yet but he's gonna start weight strength what was the word weight loading i believe they called it uh loading and strengthening the shoulder 
Yeah, whatever that means. I have no clue what loading and strengthening the shoulder is. But everyone on Mets Twitter took this as if... A lot of this, some isometric work, I'm sure some bands... Some, nothing with a ball, but a lot of stretching and some light, light calisthenics workouts. Yeah, Mess Twitter took this as if Jacob Degrom was pitching the next day. Um, yeah, this was. I was I a little it. bit perturbed by how, how excited people were about an update that said Jacob Degrom wasn't throwing still. Yeah, I mean, like I, I think the hope is that he'll be ready by the All Star break. Now is what Great. the the consensus seems to be. I'll be very happy with that. That'll be a nice trade deadline pickup, Mister Mark Wolpon. But uh, <laughs> this was just so weird that we knew Jacob Degrom had a CAT scan on Friday and was getting his MRI on Monday, and they were like, "Expect an update Monday." Then right before the game, they were like, "Might not be an update on Monday." And like all the Mets fans, I'm sure you guys too, we all sent it around our text messages. Our dads were like, "Fuck, <laughs> this Here is we really go bad." Again. Here, Here we go happens. again. And then after this insane game where the Mets score five unearned runs, and it should have been unearned runs in the ninth inning to win a game against the freaking hated Cardinals. Anthony DeComo at 11 p.m. is like, hey, going to be an up Jacob update tonight. Wait, wait for it. I was like, what? <laughs> and they drop at midnight that nothing has happened. They're going to wait three more weeks. It's bizarre yeah. world. Absolutely nuts. Leads us into game two, though. Feeling great. Feeling awesome. And our man, Chris Bassett's on the mound. And Oh, oh. Bassett Hound. So, so fucking. Oh, Bassett Hound. I like that. Yeah. I like that. I haven't thought about that. Yeah, he's a beast. Oh, that's that's got to be his thing now. People got to be woofing when Chris oh, Bassett oh, 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 oh. Is, is on the mound. Yeah, let the dogs loose. I like that. That was... <laughs> That was clever, James. You take you know take over the Bassett section here since you had right. that killer thing. Yeah, let's go. I wrote that in the notes this morning. I'm ready for Chris Bassett. And it's just like we talked about him being the new Strowman this year, and we see how bad Marcus Strowman has been for the Chicago Cubs. He's he really Sweet. looks like yeah, you might you might be kind of better than Strowman. He's just steady, man. He's steady Eddie. We called him oatmeal. That might have been a little bit too a little bit too modest for uh for Chris Bassett. Maybe French toast, maybe pancakes, like something you like more than oatmeal that has a similar amount of like very stable nutritional value. But I think his third straight start to start the season through six innings, this time nowhere in runs, two hits, three walks, six strikeouts. And we've talked a lot about Chris Bassett mixing up his repertoire. He threw five different pitches at least 12% of the time in this game. Just going absolutely crazy. And he almost almost has fourth different primary pitch in as many starts this season so i was wrong before he's had four starts not three i don't know i'm all over the place we had a fight we had a freaking fight we had a Blo- fight we're right <laughs> but he was his either one less slider than sinkers on tuesday night against the cardinals and if he would have thrown if that would have been swapped one more slider than sinkers he would have had a, a different primary pitch in all four of his starts. he's already used a sinker a cutter and a forcing fastball as his three primary pitches so I love this guy so much. He's such a pitcher, man. He just he's like he does all these tiny little things right. He's throwback. I love watching Chris Bassett work every fifth day. Yeah, and he had stuff to say after the game too about the baseballs, Lots. about how much he hates them, and that's a different baseball every pitch, every inning. It's the absolute worst. People were like, dude, Tim Healy did this classic Tim Healy thing of taking quotes out of context to make it fit some other narrative that he know will get more clicks, which was that Chris Bassett was complaining about like sticky stuff, which was definitely not the case. He was just saying like, they feel different. The weight's different. The way they move's different. Everything about these baseballs is different inning to inning. Pretty, pretty freaking well considering that. That could have been another thing that tied into this fight as well because Miles Mikolas threw some shade back at Chris Bassett today before the game saying that our guys are fine with it over here like you, you got a pitch or something like that maybe you're relying on the stuff someone I don't know if a writer said that or if Mikolas said that no but. Michaelis did say that and also Miles Michaelis um how about you shut your mouth you guys lost the series two games to one so yeah you guys really can pitch pitch well enough to lose two out of three of the New York Mets baby let's go and you crush a lizard skull with your teeth so you yeah. really don't have any right to say anything at all do you 
you might wear people's skin. I'm, I'm just going to say, I'm going to throw that out there. You think you have a moral high ground? You killed a living lizard with your mouth. <laughs> For You poured ginger ale on it. Where's PETA at? Where's PETA at? They freak out after after everything. They're at NBA games. How are they not hunting down Miles Michaelis? They have too many resources dealing with Glenn Taylor and the Minnesota Timberwolves right now for their bad chicken practices. That they, they can't, This is next week for PETA once the Timberwolves are eliminated. But anyway, f- finishing up with this you know, Chris Bass performance, he was great. He was awesome. He's steady Eddie. He's just, he's so good. He keeps hitters so off balance. Like, no one's ever comfortable in the box against him when he doesn't even have any pitch that can blow you away or, like, make your knees buckle. Like, his breaking balls are good, but there's no—they're not, like—you see you see videos on Twitter of pitchers in the minor leagues with better breaking balls than Chris Bassey. He just puts every single pitch wherever he wants it at any given time. It's He's masterful. I love watching him pitch. And he's just one of those old-school guys where you could just give him the ball and say, go have at it. You let us know when you're done. And it, that's that's the best part. He had one more quote after the game, too, that kind of got me fired up as well. They said, what is your thoughts on winning the first six series of the year? He goes, it's great, but I really only care about winning the last six. And I was like, it's my fucking boy right there. I love that. That was a great quote. He was like, we're not really that focused on April. We're just happy to be winning games right now. Which, I mean, I mentioned last week that the Astros kind of, they kind of make fun of the Mets. I'm sure a lot of other ball clubs in baseball do the same thing. It was nice to see that these guys are not, like, relishing in these... uh, in these victories, because I saw a stat on Twitter like the last time the Mets had a start this good or a similar record in as many games was the famous 2018 Mickey Calloway collapse. So she oh, shouldn't even said anything. Let's just just keep moving on. Just keep winning your series. Win every series, and you're going to be a good team. Yep. And we had a tough matchup too in Game Two. Uh, we went up against Jordan Hicks, who throws just one of the craziest sliders I've seen in a long time. We have a quote from Pete that just came through. Oh, okay. Read it. Read it. Per Mike Puma, Pete Alonso on the scrum. If I wanted to put someone in the hospital, I easily could. Uh, I was just I was just out there trying to protect my guys. <laughs> That's almost Noah Syndergaard like where he's like, if you want to fight me six foot, you know, sixty feet, six inches away, Pete's like, if I wanted to, if I wanted to hurt someone, I would. I can do it. Don't worry. Don't test me. Oh, Pete. Pete's showing a little edge. That's huge for his game. Huge. I can't I just I can't believe we have a team that has edge. This is unbelievable. If you would have told me that Pete Alonso was threatening putting people in a hospital when he came up as a rookie, I would have laughed. I'm like, Pete? The polar bear, the teddy bear, listen, polar bears kill. They're dangerous. Very Pete's, mean. They're cute, cuddly on the outside, got nice fur, kind of like Pete Alonzo. But you piss him off, give him one good swift swipe of the claw, and he'll send you to the hospital. What were we talking about? Oh, Jordan Hicks throwing that video game slider. His, his stuff's pretty crazy, but you know who figured out Jordan Hicks pretty well? James McCann. James Bye. McCann, baby. We've had Your two boy. episodes where we've highlighted James McCann. He had a great game in Game 2. Great game in Game 2. His best game of the entire year by far. He had a very loud uh, RBI double to drive Jeff McNeil in the third inning and then was driven in promptly by a Starling Marte single. And he went 3-4 for four in this game. I can't remember the last time James McCann got three hits in a game. I'm thinking about before the Diamondbacks series where Eric Chavez, who they call Xavi, which is sick, he said that McCann had been swinging it well. He said the guy's been athletic in the box. Like It's only a matter of time before it turns around. And... Pfft, I guess he was right. Yeah, I think you start to see when McCann's going well is when he starts to take that ball kind of like right over the second baseman's head to like the right center field gap. Granted, like that's not for extra bases ever because he's not the fastest guy. But when you're starting to see him do that with his swing and he's not just pulling every outside fastball for a double play to shortstop, that's when you know things are working. And I do feel like this little platoon situation that they have with McCann and Nito, which we were preaching for all of last year, seems to be the right move here because each guy seems to make some sort of impact every time they're in now, as opposed to trotting out McCann for 120 games and him being dead-ass tired. Definitely, especially because McCann is a guy who, he is a big 
strong dude. Like, I want James McCann to have the opportunity to use more force, maybe less often. And you can kind of see it when it seems like he is very, looks very much more athletic in the box, like Eric Chavez said during these last couple of games here. So keep it going. Nice 50-50 split. Every guy helps out. Just hit ninth every day. We don't need much. Just give us something when you can. Yep. And the Mets, I mean, they were kind of in control this whole game. It was just close. It was 2 nothing going late into the game. And then Starling Marte got hit with the bases loaded, which also, you know, also started some stuff here. Got people going a little bit, along with Pete getting hit in the head, because that was the second time Pete's got hit in the head this year. A little bit of beanball going on. We mm-hmm. now know what it ended up leading to, but of course, this was a precursor to everything. Also fun, that little uh, run late in the game when we got another run on a hit-by-pitch. Like The Mets have done that twice in four games now. Who, who else even does that? It's ridiculous. Well, the Mets got their first hit with the bases loaded today in Game 3, which is so funny that we are 19, 20 games into the season. The Mets just got their first hit with the bases loaded. It's because a lot of times, we get hit by pitch or walked. Yeah, right? It's ridiculous. Ridiculous. Uh, how, do you, how do you have 14 wins and no hits with the bases loaded? It's like an anomaly, honestly. <laughs> it's a physical anomaly. Five total guys hit this game. Uh, two Cardinals then got hit later in the game, but obviously unintentional. Obviously on pitches that that kind of missed. Brendan Donovan early in the game, and then Tommy Edwin like a like a slider his back foot late. Yeah. So and it was in a close game. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> they're not putting Tommy Edmund on the base. The starting Marte one was to make it a two run game, a three run game. Like there's no yeah. way it was intentional. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Diaz got a little bit shaky, but mm-hmm. as Edwin Diaz has pretty much done this year, he ended up getting the job done. He was still still pretty filthy, throwing a lot more fastballs. Throwing a lot more fastballs. The four pitch walk just sh- shook me to my core. I was terrified. I was, and then they like, threw two more the- balls and they had a nice mound visit. Then we got a great call from the ump. Shout out Mark Wagner who, gave, who called a great game on Tuesday night. That's our boy. <laughs> Kept the game under control and in oh, the right yeah, way as yeah, well yeah, for yeah, those exactly, New York exactly. Mets. And your boy won big money that night too. I got to talk about my big bet. We had a little little three same game parlay. DraftKings was giving us some good plus 100% boost on a parlay during that game because on TBS. So it's like, all right. Mets minus one and a half, which that that hit. We won by three. Uh, Jeff McNeil and Nolan Arenado to get a hit. Your boy turned two twenty dollars into two hundred dollars. What a what a night! Mets win and two hundred dollars. I'm feeling great. What a massive hit, dude! Massive, massive hit, and that's pretty much the series. The Mets took two of three from the St. Louis Cardinals. We had a fight. We had some late inning antics. We had some craziness in game one, game two. We were just better, and game three. The brawl. I mean, I don't think there's really much else here to talk about St. Louis, but circle your calendars, guys, because in the middle of May, the Cardinals are coming to town, and I will tell you right now, this is not the last fight we have seen between these two teams. May 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th. The four-game set at City Field in less than three weeks. I'm very excited for that. Also, this is a team that, again, there's historic rivalry between the Mets and Cardinals. Like I said last episode, that we're directly competing for playoff spots in the National League. And there's a reasonable chance in the next few years when baseball realigns that we are once again paired up with this team in division. And it seems like there's a couple of players in each of these teams who are going to be around for a little while. So I'm happy that we could have a new budding, a reborn baseball rivalry. Yeah, be nice. Be nice. Definitely circle, you know, mark your calendars for May 16th, 17th, 18th, and the 19th, or whatever the four days are, it is going to be fun baseball. Now, something we want to do on the podcast a little bit more is get a mailbag going. We've done it before, but we want to do it a little bit more moving forward. So we asked you guys on Twitter, make sure you're following us at MetsUp. Mailbag time. Send us your questions about the Mets. We'll answer them on the next episode of the podcast. And we're just going to kind of run through a bunch of these and give you guys our quick thoughts and opinions. First one coming in from Javier Lorenzo. He says, hey, greetings from Costa Rica. Shout out Costa Rica. Shout out Costa Rica. When Jake comes back, let's say everyone in the rotation is pitching great. Who is the odd man out or do we go with a six-man rotation to cover for Jake? Jake and Max. Do we use the odd man out as a long relief guy for Jake or a six man and with Peterson in relief? So I'll defer to you first, James. I have my answer. I'd love to hear what you have to say. I think 
I mean, I think a big thing is one, just like Jake actually coming back. Like he still has another MRI in three weeks. That's going to determine whether he's throwing or not and whether he actually can come back by, let's say, like the first week of July if he's cleared the second week of May. So that's one other thing. The other thing is all the other pitchers, if Jake does come back healthy, also still being healthy by that point because it's baseball and pitchers get hurt every single day in this league and there's no telling when's going to happen next or who's going to happen to. But in the utopian world that Javier described, I do think there's a very high likelihood that we see Jacob deGrom brought on in something like uh, something like the Michael Kopech role that we saw the White Sox do last year with Kopech kind of still learning how to be a starter again while also coming off Tommy John surgery. I know that neither of those things are true for Jake, but as, um, I don't even know what the word is, as flimsy as his right shoulder, right elbow have proven to be over the last two years with him throwing this insane intensity over all these innings and pitches. Like, I do think there is there could be some value in him pitching for shorter stints of time with that same intensity rather than pitching with, like, 80% of his intensity and still being a traditional starter, especially because it really benefits Jacob deGrom to be healthy for as much of this year as possible with him opting out of his contract before next season starts. So I do think there's a chance that we see Jacob deGrom deployed in a bit more of a unique way if and when he comes back. See, I think it's going to be the opposite. I think he's going to come back and he's just going to be ready to go. Like whenever he eventually does come back this year, as long as he does knock on some wood there, I think he's just kind of going to go right back into it. Maybe not these seven, eight inning appearances, but I think you're not going to see him pitch like less than five unless there is something going like catastrophically wrong in the game. So let's just say he's healthy. You have Scherzer, you have Bassett, you have Tyler McGill. He's staying He's staying in the rotation. McGill's not going anywhere. You got four locked in right there. And Carrasco. And then you got... And Carrasco. So Carrasco, Taiwan, David Peterson are fighting for that spot. I think you have to give it to Carrasco right now. Health, performance, everything. And then Walker and Peterson can kind of backpack off each other. You also have to remember that later in the year, we have a couple double headers coming up too. So having this rotational depth later in the year will be huge because we still do have to make up those first two weeks of the season that we missed because of the lockout. So I think the easy, obvious choice right now, if DeGrom and everyone else is healthy and pitching great, it would be DeGrom, Scherzer, Bassett, McGill, Carrasco. And, I mean, Taiwan and David Peterson out of the pen as, like, longer relief guys really wouldn't be the worst-case scenario by any means. That would be a pretty beefy rotation we're looking at. Yeah, I agree with that point. I just think that, like, there's never there's never a perfect world in baseball. There's always something else that's going to happen to make this become either more complicated or less complicated. There's no way that this decision is the exact same amount of complicated as we think it is right now on April 28th. But I do, be do sick. Yeah, it'd be, be amazing. Sick. We could project it'd be everything. So sick. Yeah, <laughs> if, this was our, if this was our issue right now, oh my God, we have seven starting pitchers. What do we do? Seven and a half almost. But there, I do still think there is a world just because another Jacob deGrom injury would just be so bad for him and his brand as he's going into, again, a contract negotiation with not only the Mets, but possibly with other teams in Major League Baseball. He... He just can't get injured again this season and expect to make anything close to the amount of money that he's earned or he's potentially due. So I do think there is some space to be creative. Also, just because we saw Max Scherzer's arm go dead as a doornail last year by the time October rolled around. And it sucked to watch because a guy like Max Scherzer, who we're so used to being so dominant and so competitive, he was just he was rendered at like 60% of his capabilities by the time the NLCS came around. He's the kind of guy who maybe if he throws a few less innings down the stretch, it's really helpful. Tyler McGill, he had a big jump in innings last year. We don't know what happened at the alternate site for the Mets, but he threw about 120 last year, so he's probably due for anywhere from 150 to 175 by the time this year ends. 
he's another guy. You might just get the six-man rotation going or use Jacob deGrom and David Peterson, Taiwan Walker as like these three, four-inning weapons late in the year. So you can take the load off guys depending on how the playoff race looks and just how every everything looks. There's so many factors that are going to tie into how this pitching staff will be used down the stretch. And there's so much to benefit from your pitchers getting ahead of ourselves here, being as rested as possible heading into October. We saw Definitely. that. Majorly, and again, in the NLCS last year, the big difference between the Braves and the Dodgers. The Dodgers, a team that fought really hard to get that playoff spot, fell one game short of their division. And the Braves, a team that kind of coasted for the last six weeks of the season, were able to cap their starters around 5-6. So they were saving some innings, but still stretched out enough to do anything they needed in the playoffs. Yeah, no, definitely. I think it'll be a very good problem to have if this problem even does ever arise for the New York Fantastic problem. One of the best problems I could envision. Let's talk about the offensive side of baseball. This one comes from Brandon. Does Robinson Cano have any chance of being successful this season? If the obvious is true, what does a realistic phase-out look like for him? Are there any chances of other bench players getting traded, and if so, to who? Sorry for the 50-part question. So I think we'll talk mostly about the Robinson Cano stuff here. It's going to be really tough for the current Robinson Cano that we are seeing play right now for the New York Mets be successful he's just not hitting the ball hard he's not running well he doesn't have the same range he once had he's hitting the ball a little bit hard he's hitting the ball kind of hard if nothing else he's hit the ball hard like twice this year like hit the ball hard twice in how many at-bats has he had so the consistency of him being able to hit the ball hard plus the combination of he's got no legs left he makes this team a whole lot less athletic which is something that it seemed like they made a very conscious effort to try to improve upon this season To me, it doesn't make any sense to keep playing him nearly as much as they have. If we're talking phase-out, I think when we start talking about the roster cuts, he might be a guy who is very much uh, on watch to be cut, possibly. Yeah, and asking about what it could look like, I do think that it'll just be like very unceremonious. Like You'll just wake up one day, and Robinson Cano will no longer be a professional baseball player for the New York Mets. And again, whether it's something that he, at some point, looks around and is like, I really just can't snuff it anymore. I mean, there's no way he's going to turn down. I think it's $48 million over the next two seasons. I don't know I don't know any God-fearing man that would, but it's a very peculiar situation because he's a guy like you're you're running the risk now of like Lenny tarnishing status. And it's not that I still do think that Robinson Cano can be a semi-useful bat on the right team in the perfect, pristine situation, like kind of how the Dodgers used Albert Pujols last year, where he is the lone unathletic guy on your bench rather than one of three relatively unathletic guys on your bench. Like, it's just the fit on the Mets right now, coupled with the fact that we traded Jared Kelnick for him and, and you need, like, a lot of things going bad. He's, not, he's definitely not good right now. He's chasing more than anybody in baseball. He's slower than almost everybody in baseball. And like you said, he's hitting the ball on the ground, not particularly hard. So it's pretty unlikely that he's going to, I don't know, just be good again all of a sudden. I think that's what would be shocking, but... I think the phase-out, I don't know, it just seems like it's so unlikely to happen based on how much respect they've given him thus far. Like you can't, say, yeah. you can't be the 5-6 and six hitter and then get cut. You have to be the 5-6 and six hitter and then the 7-hitter and then the 8-hitter and then get cut, right? Like he's still hitting in front of James McCann and Jeff McNeil. Granted, it's, it's bad decision-making that shouldn't yeah. be happening, but it does seem like, at least right now in the current you know structure of the New York Mets, he's somewhat valuable to them. Now, should he be this valuable? I think me and James are on the same page here. Absolutely not. But that's what the outlook is right now. And I do think that, you know, along with the $20 million price tag that you're gonna have to pay him for the next couple years here still, I think they like his presence in the clubhouse too. Like even when Pete got had that like rough day, got hit in the head or whatever, and or he got taken out for defense the other day for Dom, he was kind of like talking to him and like keeping him calm and almost like just keeping him loose, being like, hey, man, listen, like what? we don't know what they're talking about. But 
He's almost like having another coach out there for these players because he's a little bit of like a bridge between probably bucking these guys in a way, just age-wise. But that's not enough to be a, keeping a guy on a roster that desperately needs to get a little bit more F or a little more value out of a spot that's right now getting none. Especially when we're going to be at the point next week where the Mets basically have to cut one of their bench players to keep a four-man bench and... Because they're gonna they're gonna want to carry a minimum thirteen pitchers now that you are allowed to carry a fourteenth pitcher something that came down from Major League Baseball on I think that was Tuesday they mentioned they announced that something so, yeah yeah so a lot of our teams in baseball will mostly have probably three man benches and fourteen pitchers the Mets will do a four man bench and thirteen pitchers but if you have a four man bench and three of those bench players in a given night are J D Davis who can play third base a little bit Dom Smith who can only play first and Robinson Cano who can play second base a little bit and a backup catcher. That's a weak bench. That's a bench that puts you at a disadvantage against most other teams in National League and all of baseball. It's hard. It's going to be very hard for the Mets to get away with that and not see it impact them on a nightly basis. Yeah, and I think this ties in nicely with another question we got from a viewer. Christina at Worsted Rex 2. Who do you guys think is likely to be cut when the teams have to lower their rosters to 26? Which I think is the conversation here. I mean, looking at options, because you want to find guys that have options that can go down. And there are some names of dudes that could go down now would I make this move absolutely not you're not sending down Jeff McNeil you're not sending down Pete Alonso they have options not happening on the bench right now JD has two Luis Guillorme has one Dom Smith has two you're sending Dom down no because then you don't really have a backup first baseman you're sending JD down no because he's your right-handed bat off the bench Guillorme is probably the realistic option but in a world where it's Luis Guillorme versus Robinson Cano, it sounds crazy, but Luis Guillorme has more value to this team right now, 100%. Significantly. What if, again, knocking on wood, what if Francisco Lindor gets hit in like the kneecap in a game and he has to miss the rest of the game with knee swelling? Who who plays shortstop if Luis Guillorme is not on the roster? Jeff McNeil? Yeah. And Jeff McNeil's playing shortstop. Who's in the outfield? Like, just There's so many things that can go wrong without versatility on your bench. And we see a team like the Yankees who have like one of the most versatile rosters in baseball. Their, their roster is so versatile that right now they're only carrying three bench players because they have Tim LaCastro, Marwin Gonzalez, DJ LeMahieu, Isaiah Kiner-Falefa. They have guys who can play all over the diamond that allows them to carry more pitchers. And when you have very good pitchers, like the Yankees do, and like it seems like the Mets have built a bit more pitching depth than we may have assumed coming into the year, you want to keep these guys in the roster because they can be used as weapons. And having three guys on your bench who really can't give you almost any defensive value, and almost none of them are even returning, heavy positive offensive value right now, it starts to become a question of why is everybody here and how long are they going to stay? Yeah, and on the pitching side, the guys who have options left are Seth Lugo, Drew Smith, Tyler McGill, and Yuan Lopez, who obviously we talked a little about a little bit about earlier. Legend. So Yuan Lopez is probably the likely guy to go down if they have to send anybody down on the pitching side because Sean Reed Foley and Trevor Williams were probably the most expendable well, pitchers. We talked about this the other day with Adonis Medina. Yuan Lopez is going to go down on Saturday for Taiwan Walker. Yeah. And Yoan Lopez has uh, two options as well, so it's not like they even lose him if they want to. It's going to be really tough. The roster crunch is going to be... There's going to be someone who is a Major League Baseball player that is going to be cut, essentially, from this New York Mets team. Yeah, I think there's a chance that they just send a guy like J.D. down and just tell him it's going to be short-term while they work out what's going to happen between Dom and Cano because he has options. And like it's going to be embarrassing for a guy like J.D. Davis, who's above-average Major League hitter, to go down. But if they tell him, like this is just... This is literally just business. Like, we don't want to have to DFA somebody, and you have an option, and you're, like, a bit extraneous to this roster. But also, you see, we've seen a few times this season, lefties come in the game against Mets and just kind of have their way with parts of this order. We don't really have that strong right-handed presence on the bench besides J.D. Davis. So you lose him, and you lose an element there, too. Can't really get rid of him. That's why it's so weird. And, it, like, the, the elephant in the room is Robinson Cano. 
That's the obvious choice. It feels like from every standpoint outside of financials, which you want to cut a guy that you're going to pay $40 million to never play again. They bought out Bobby Bonilla. You can buy out Robinson Cano and do some crazy contract where you're paying him a million dollars for the next 100 years. I mean, he's 40 years old right now. He's not going to live 100. Just say a million dollars for 100 years. But I do think what you said before is true about him having presence in this clubhouse and him being very respected veteran. Robinson Cano, if not for these steroid suspensions, would be approaching the 3,000 hit club this season and literally the Hall of Fame as one of the yep. best offensive second basemen in the history of the sport. And I think it, a lot of players still see him that way. I don't know how performance-enhancing drug suspensions like go over within like in players' minds, but you just look at the way the hitters in the team gravitate, gravitate to him, especially the young Latin players, and he clearly has some weight. So if they just wake up one day and he's DFA'd, it might be weird, but we've, we've seen a lot of teams do similar moves in the last year. The Angels have done it twice in 12 months. Like Teams do this. I don't know. I really know what's going to happen, but he is the obvious choice if I was making the decision. It's also not my money. I don't have to look at the owner and be like, can we have a $20 million, can we have a $50 million check? Like, we can't, I can't do that. My friend who works in the Astros organization, who I talked about the other day, I spoke with him on the phone. He was talking about a situation similar to this where they have Pedro Baez on the roster, who they signed to a relatively big contract for reliever. I believe it was after the 2020 World Series, that the 27% of a World Series that the Dodgers won. And he's just been stinking like since he left the team. He's come to the Astros with absolutely no juice in his arm. And just a few days ago, they finally made the decision to cut him and get a real player on the roster. But he said, like, it's a diff- much different angle when you look at that internally versus externally. Because the general manager, this is a little different because this general manager signed that player. He has to go to his owner and say, I made a mistake that cost you a significant amount of money. Now, you have to trust me again that getting rid of this guy will not compound our problem. Getting a new player on this roster will help solve it. And that is kind of the crux of the Robinson Cano issue. Yeah. Uh, if the Mets, I think, want to be the best team they possibly can moving forward, at least in my mind, and maybe yours too, James, I don't know, it's probably without Robinson Cano on this roster. Probably. And that's not saying that no team would scoop him up. I do think a team would actually find a way to scoop Robinson Cano up. He's free. You'll yeah. uh, The Reds will scoop him up and he'll play second base and they'll put Jonathan India shortstop or whatever they'll do some crazy shit oh there's a lot of teams that could probably just use a left-handed bat with some power or maybe a lot of teams think he's cooked and he doesn't get picked up I saw someone in my mentions on Twitter a couple days ago was like we can't cut Robbie go to the Bronx and hit 300 oh my god yeah you can't just can't think like that you can't think like that first of all just I don't care about batting average in the slightest and second of all like there's no way Robinson Cano is going to put on a different jersey and like all of a sudden have new powers. Like we've watched him play for a few weeks now. He's just not athletic. He's not lifting the ball and he's not hitting it particularly hard on a regular basis. Like it's hard to reason with the fact that he's going to get significantly better here. All the things that happen with old players when they start to actually be old, the things that go immediately is what has happened to Robinson Cano. Like he didn't play for a year. He didn't play for a whole year. And like can't really blame the guy. And when he was playing, when we saw him at his healthiest, we know he was getting a little bit of help. So we don't actually know how long Robinson Cano has probably been feeling like this old man that we currently see on the field right now. It's man, I'm. I will say this: thank goodness it's not my money. Thank mm-hmm. goodness it's not your money. And thank mm-hmm. goodness we don't actually have to make this decision because I can imagine Billy Epler right now is just going. I can't. I can't yeah. believe I'm stuck in this situation right now. Like, do I gotta go, Steve Cohen? Even though he didn't make the trade. It's, hey, Steve, uh, 40 mil or mm-hmm. keep Robinson Cano on the team and we are worse. It's tough. It also seems like teams just know how to beat Robinson Cano this year. Like, 
he's chasing everything. He's in the first percentile in all of baseball and chase rate. That means he's chasing, he's swinging at pitches outside of the strike zone at a rate higher than almost every other player in the entire league. And a big part of that is the fact that he's getting a very, very steady dose of breaking balls. In Robinson Cano's entire career, the most breaking balls he's ever faced percentage-wise in a season is 26.4%, and that was 2017 with the Mariners. So far this season, Robinson Cano's facing over 33% breaking balls, and 51% fastballs, down from usually being a guy who sees more than 60% fastballs for the course of his career. And on those breaking balls, he's whiffing 38% of the time, and his cumulative launch angle on every breaking ball that's been put in play, it's only nine, so it's like a meaningless sample. It's a stupid stat, but I think it's just funny to mention it from watching these games. It's negative 10. Every, like the nine breaking balls that he's put in play, they've all been pounded directly into the ground. Yeah, the, the thing I will say too is like Cano's bat speed definitely isn't there, so it feels like he's probably cheating the fastball, which is why anytime it's relatively close to the zone, he's like, I'm going to swing because if it's a fastball, I got to hit it. Can't let those go. <laughs> Yeah, and they just swing and missing at the breaking balls. It's not. It's just. It's just not good right now. And he might get somewhat better because he is still, like, he, there's something in his bones that makes him good at baseball. But I don't know, man. It'd be shocking. It was a fun bit early in the year, but it just he's just not hitting it hard. No, he's not hitting it hard. All right, Eric Briggs coming to us asking, what's our favorite pitching metric to judge a judge a player on? I'll let James go first since he's the pitching guru. I'm not a pitching guru. I'm a pitching guy. Don't call me a guru Pitch, yet. I, I should say more. guru. I'm the pitching yeah. whisperer. Yeah, like you can give me that right now because that's kind of more of like a weird novelty title. Guru yeah. is like you need a lot, way more knowledge to be a guru. I'm not a guru. <laughs> but my, my favorite thing to look at with pitchers is, I mean, it sounds going to sound kind of weird, like real like new school backwards baseball, but like I just like seeing velocity. I like seeing the way guys' pitches move. Like Baseball Savant has really cool tables. If you scroll down a pitcher's page where it will list every single one of their pitches along with their horizontal and vertical movement. And it'll highlight rather blue based on how far above league average that pitch moves, both horizontally and vertically. I love looking at that. And then with that, strikeout rate, whiff rate, and then things like uh, swing strike rate, which is whiff rate, but overall your pitch instead of all your swings, how often a hitter swings through it. And then past that, just like when you really get down to the nitty gritty, like how many pitches a guy throws when he doesn't excel in any of those other areas. Like that's how a guy like Chris Bassett kind of slips through the cracks of the average baseball fan because he doesn't have high velocity. He doesn't really have any pitches that have really crazy specs. He's not getting tons of strikeouts or whiffs, but when you look at the guy's repertoire, it's like six, seven pitches deep, five that he uses on a regular basis. That That's an impressive profile. So it might have been a little nuanced. There's no real answer to that question, but I like pitch movement and swings and misses. Yeah, for me, I'm going to go with the K rate. Love K rate. Love walk rate. I love those two stats. It just If you can strike out a lot of batters and you don't walk a lot of guys, you're, you're probably pretty— Oh, with that K minus walk rate. K minus walk rate is an incredibly yeah. valuable stat to look at for pitchers. I totally forgot it. Fangrass makes it nice and neat in— uh, in like their third table they show on a player's page. And that, over time, has proven to be one of the most meaningful stats with spotting pitching breakouts and just identifying who the best pitchers in the league are. You strike out guys, you don't walk guys. It's a That's a pretty it. good recipe. You get swings and misses and don't put guys on base for free. Mm-hmm. And I'll be boring, too. I still care about ERA, even though I know FIP's technically a better stat. FIP I, I mean, look at as well. but FIP, FIP's okay. I don't think FIP is like the be-all and end-all things. Like I think Sierra is probably better than FIP and ex-FIP. And ERA is like, once you, when you're looking at a, like a full season's worth of stats, like if you're looking at last year or the year before, I do think ERA has some value. Especially when you like understand the context of it. Like when you see a guy like Aaron Nola who has like a ridiculous ERA, but his FIP and his ex-FIP are significantly lower than that. You know that the Phillies defense is awful, so that's going to make his FIP significantly lower than his ERA. And Aaron Nola plays in a park that allows a lot of home runs, and his repertoire is susceptible to home runs. So that's going to make his ex-FIP lower, because ex-FIP takes your FIP, but it gives you a league average home run rate. And that you shouldn't really be using a league average home run rate for all guys, because some guys have reasons they have higher or lower home run rates. Like, that's a skill. Like, launch angle suppression, la- like, manipulating a hitter's launch angle is a skill. Keeping the ball in the yard is a skill. So that's something that's important, I think. But 
of all the like I don't I don't know I don't really love those full rate stats unless I'm looking at a full year of a pitcher because it just takes them too long to become stable. I also love a good whip. I love a good whip. What's a solid stat? Because walks, hits per innings pitched. Hey, you have you have an under one whip. I promise you, you're a good pitcher. You are doing something right. The guy who invented whip like 50-ish years ago, that's that's just a great move. What a beast. Hit the nail on the head. Hit yeah. the absolute nail on Crushed the head. Crushed it. So I think that's a good place to end our mailbag. We'll be doing that, I think, like every midweek episode now. It's fun. Get some interaction with the fans, as we always like to do. Now let's go ahead and preview the Philadelphia Philly series, where we've got, what, three games going up against Philly? Friday, Saturday, Sunday, all night games. I would have liked mm-hmm. a little day game sprinkled in there, but we got Sunday night baseball as well. So not getting Gary, Keith, and Ron, but the boys will be at the park, so we'll be yeah. all right. We'll be there'll be at least one messed up representative at the park every game this series, actually. Yes. So if you guys see us again, say what's up. We'll have some stickers for you to give out. Oh yeah, stickers and just some good some good jolly laughs. There's also such a massive break from the first home series of the year. Every game was a day game. It's just like the night I love a good day game though. I really I know, like do. this side like, of the game should have been a one o'clock game. Should have been. Should have locked it in at one mm-hmm. o'clock. Seven o'clock. Maybe they got a Fox game. It is. It why? is the Fox game. I'm looking at it right now. Yes, it That's is. FS1. There it is. Yeah, we got Met, locked the in. Mets are the hot ticket now, dude. Can you blame them? I mean, no. look at look at the, how this team's been playing. We should be the hot ticket, especially if we're starting brawls. That's good TV. Why don't you run us through the pitching matchups here, James? What are we looking at? All right, Friday night we have what I think is the marquee match of this whole series: Tyler McGill versus Aaron Nola. We know what Aaron Nola does to the Mets, especially in City Field, and we saw what Tyler McGill did to the Phillies last time out. That's going to be a fascinating one. Saturday we have the softest matchup in this series, but very important for the Mets because it's the return of Taiwan Walker coming back from the IL after the shoulder bursitis, and his only other start of the year was also against the Phillies, which is kind of funny. He also looked good in that. And Kyle Gibson, who's been, I'd say, better than I expected so far coming into the year. He's running like a top 50 whiff rate in all of baseball. So he's a guy who I could see some strikeouts start to pour out for him. And lastly, Sunday Night Baseball. Big night for the Mets Stuff podcast here. Max Scherzer versus Zach Eflin on ESPN, baby. That's going to be a fun one. That's going to be fun to see Scherzer, night game, Sunday Night Baseball, going up against the Phillies. That should be some fun. Mm Mm-hmm. I Will think uh, I, I feel good the way the Mets team's playing again. We should be winning. We should be beating teams that were better then, and we are better than the Phillies. I think right now, uh, Harper is still on the mend a little bit, right? He's just DHing right now. I think. Yeah, Harper has only been DHing for a little bit over a week, and he's going to DH for this. Early said another full entire week until May third. He has he has a barking elbow, which has to be terrifying for the Phillies, who kind of built this entire hodgepodge of a team around the fact that they would have one elite outfield defender in Bryce Harper and right, kind of holding it up, and now they have. Odubel Herrera flanked by Nick Castellanos and Kyle Schwarber out there. Put a ball in the air at City Field. It might be dropping. Yeah. They did call up Roman Quinn the other day after they sent down Bryson Stott. They have Roman Quinn again? Yeah. He was on the Marlins to start the year. How'd he get back in Philly? You don't stray too far from homeland, baby. <laughs> oh my God, Roman Quinn. That's crazy that he somehow found his way back to Philly. I mean, they need a defensive outfielder. And Bryson Stott was four for 30 in the major leagues with one extra base hit. So, I mean, Bryson Stott still be a good player, but he's not in the team this time around. Because kind of Alec Bohm took that third base spot back from him. He now makes routine plays most of the time, which is a big deal. And hits the ball hard consistently. Yeah, that's what you get for being Bryson Stott with that name and those walk-up songs. You just you need to get sent back down, get a yeah. reality check, come back up with good music. Yeah, and come back up with good music. That's it. And then, I mean, otherwise, we missed Corey Knievel in the last series. Hopefully, we don't have to see him one time in this one. Um, we didn't see Zach Eflin either. Zach Eflin's just a, he's a good, sturdy, solid, right, good pitcher. I don't know. This would be a good series, but I, this, a theme early on in the Mets season, we seem to have a pitching advantage in most of the games. Aaron Nola is better than Tyler McGill. I will, I'm not that much of a homer right now. And actually, <laughs> and Taiwan Walker probably is about maybe a shade worse than Gibson just because we don't know exactly what he's going to do or what he's going to look like. But with a doubleheader on Tuesday against Atlanta that the boys will also be at, big, <laughs> a lot of Mets games going on here, it's very important to get some deep pitching in this series and like put, try and put this Philly team out of its misery early. 
Yep, keep rolling, keep the good vibes, keep the offense, keep the pitch, and keep everything going in the right direction. And hopefully we hear a lot of those trumpets this weekend. Edwin Diaz, I want to see some saves. I want him to shut it down, Mm -hmm. as John Taffer would say. So I think that's a perfect place to end today's episode of the Messed Up Podcast, episode number 87, presented by The Seven Line. Make sure you guys are following us on Twitter. Instagram, YouTube, everything at Metstup. You'll be able to find us. Yeah, we're rocking seven line seven shirts line, today baby. too. Seven line, hell yeah. Tuesday we'll be at the seven line game as well mm-hmm. with the seven line, which should be a lot of fun. Random rambling here as I continue to do the outro. Well, it's listening- good because you didn't do any intros. Now get it all out in the outro. Yeah, get it all out in the outro. Uh, listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen. You'll be able to find us. Drop us a review. Drop us a rating. I'm asking you guys, do it for us. Help us out. And follow James on Twitter at Jeter Had No Range. Follow me at Giraffe Mark. Anything else? We're uh, we're gonna cut it there. We're set, dude. I'm ready to rock. Let's cut it there. Peace out, guys. See you next time. <laughs>